Before we opened this building we're in now, uh, I used to have my office over at our Anderson campus, which is closer to Texas A&M. And right around the corner from where my office was, was a Freebirds World Burrito restaurant that I ate at a lot. Uh, maybe once or twice a week I would eat at this restaurant. And so uh, they have an app that, you know, you can use to earn points like a lot of restaurants do as you buy food. When you earn enough points, you get a free burrito or a free entree or whatever it may be. Uh, but one year for a, a limited period of time, the app also had these uh, status levels, these status tiers where when you spent uh, a certain amount of money overall, you would unlock different rewards uh, that I guess they would send to you either via email or actually in the mail. The highest status was called legend. And I remember this because I worked up toward legend for some, somewhere close to a year. And I finally got up to legend status. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you how much money you have to spend on burritos to get to legend status. But here's what happened. When I got to legend status, all of a sudden in the mail, I started getting Freebird swag, like tons of it. So uh, here's one thing they sent me, this, this tote bag that says tote spicy that I still use. Like I take it to the gym and stuff like that. I put my gym clothes in there. Uh, there was this, this cup. There actually was a lid once for this, just a Freebird's cup. Uh, some of the items I no longer have, but I took pictures of them because I was so proud of them. So this, this ball cap, they sent me earbuds, they sent me flashlights that said Freebirds. My favorite was they sent me this beanie that, uh, now <laughs> this was before I had my beard, uh, that I would wear in the, you know, the few days of cold weather. I mean, all of these things just kept coming to my house once or twice a week for like six or eight months. It was like I had unlocked this new status that resulted in these lavish rewards that were just sent to me, uh, free of charge, I guess, although technically I did pay for them. But all of a sudden, what was crazy about it was all of a sudden after several months, they just dried up. They just stopped coming. I don't know if they ran out of rewards in their warehouse, like they ran out of swag or they decided this was costing them too much money, but the rewards suddenly stopped. But for that brief period of time, man, it was so delightful. I was like, I've unlocked some new status that has resulted in all of these blessings on my life. I share that because Paul is going to tell us in Romans chapter 5 that if you know Jesus Christ, you have been granted a new status that results in lavish rewards and blessings on your life. Lavish benefits on my life and on your life. And unlike a restaurant's reward program, unlike any other benefits program you could join, the, the rewards of knowing Jesus Christ never dry up, never end. God never runs out of resources with which to bless his people. God never runs out of grace to bestow favor on his people. The rewards of knowing Jesus Christ begin at the moment you know Jesus Christ and believe that you are, you are given eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. At the moment you believe, God, God confers upon you, and we've talked about this as we move through Romans 1 through 4, God confers upon you a right status before him. 
And remember, we've talked about righteousness as this idea that righteousness means all of my relational obligations to God have been met. At the moment I believe in Jesus, by grace, through faith, God declares me right with him, righteous before God. Now, what Paul gets into now in Romans chapter 5 is if you know Jesus Christ and you've been declared right with him, you have been initiated into a rewards program that is greater than any rewards program in the universe. And what Paul is going to tell us in Romans chapter 5 is that if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have been justified, declared right before God, then, then you uh, have a life where everything has changed. Everything has changed. The way you think about your, your present day experiences, the way you think about your future and the level of confidence you have in the future, the level of intimacy and closeness you have with God today, how you even think about your past life. Everything has changed for the better. That for those who know Jesus Christ, now in Romans 5, Paul says it's like a door has opened to where you and I are daily or momentary recipients of the grace of God in ways we could not have even imagined before we knew Jesus Christ. And these blessings never end. They go on and on and on. And so what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 is this. The gospel is good news because of all of the amazing benefits that come from knowing Jesus. The gospel is good news because of all the amazing benefits benefits that come from knowing Jesus. And Paul is going now in chapter 5 to describe these benefits. And as he describes the benefits that flow from knowing Jesus, three times in this passage, he is going to challenge us to exult or rejoice or literally boast in the hope that we now have in, in Jesus Christ. Remember previously he'd said, you can't boast in your works. You can't boast in your own righteousness. But now he says, when I describe to you all of the amazing benefits that come from knowing Jesus, I want you to rejoice. I want you to tell people about it. I want you to boast in it. Your life and my life, if we know Jesus Christ, should be a never-ending experience of joy. Not a joy that is rooted in our circumstances. We're going to see this as we move through Romans 5. Our joy is not because everything in our lives always goes the way it should go. But our joy transcends our circumstances because it is rooted in a restored relationship to God and a hope for the future that cannot be stolen away. And so Paul is going to say, if you know Jesus, your life, my life, should be a life of joy. It should be a life of hope. Hope that you, you proclaim to others. Hope that you live out on a daily basis. Joy that permeates your attitude, even in suffering. Is that true of your life? Even in the midst of trial and suffering? Are you rooted in the hope of Jesus Christ and filled with the joy of knowing him because of the blessings that have been lavished upon us through the gospel? So the gospel is good news because of all the amazing benefits that come from knowing Jesus. Follow with me, Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So he begins with, of course, this therefore. He says, in light of the fact that you've been declared right with God by believing in Jesus, the grace of God has now made you right with him because you believed in Jesus. He says, we have peace with God. Now I want you to notice, this is peace with God. It's not the peace of God, it's peace with God. Now, peace with God may result in the peace of God, but the the distinction that I'm making here, that Paul makes, is that this peace is not simply a subjective feeling of peacefulness. It's not like just a calmness in my soul. But he says you actually have peace with God in the sense that you now have an objective relational change between you and God. This word peace, it goes back to the Old Testament word that some of you are are no doubt familiar with, of shalom. The Greek word is irene, the the Hebrew word was shalom. And the idea of shalom is an all-encompassing reconciliation in a relationship, specifically our relationship with God, this all-encompassing reconciliation that isn't only the absence of hostility or conflict, it also is the presence of blessing and of life and of joy with God. So Paul says we have peace with God, meaning this this shalom, this all-encompassing life that God desires us to have, where we know him, we have relational closeness to him, we have the hope for a great future, we have a life beyond the sin and shame that he described in Romans 1 through 3, this shalom, wholeness of life. Uh, In Numbers chapter 6, we see an example of the concept of shalom. Uh, You may remember that Moses was told to tell Aaron, the high priest, to bless the people of Israel. He would pronounce a a high priestly blessing on the people of Israel. A lot of you are familiar with Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you. That is, may may he bestow his favor his goodwill on you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. In other words, lavish all his good gifts on you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face on you and give you peace, give you shalom. Notice this blessing. It is is relational closeness to God. It is a life in the land that is blessed by God for the nation of Israel. It is the gifts of God, the grace of God on your life. It's more than just the absence of hostilities. Here's another way you might think about this peace, this shalom. Imagine that you have a conflict with your spouse. Maybe you had one this morning. It happens sometimes on Sunday mornings, I've heard. So sometimes it it may be that, that one of you is running behind. Right? And the other of you has said a hundred times, I want to leave at 845 so we can get a parking place in the parking lot so we don't walk in late. Right? And, and so one of you is running behind and all of a sudden you find yourself scrambling. You leave the house at 905 and there are words exchanged in the house, in the car, on the way. Now, as you're walking up toward the foyer to the church, the words cease the open hostility stops, right? The smiles come on the face. You're like, hey, how's it going, right? And you're talking. And everything externally looks like the absence of conflict, the absence of hostility. But as you sit here in the room, you know there is no shalom. 
There is no reconciliation. There is no true harmony. And so when I uh, said, let us pray, where ordinarily you might reach over and grab your spouse's hand, you started to, but then put your hand back on your Bible. Right? As you drive home, you might see a funny reel on Instagram that ordinarily you would share, and you'd be like, ah, nope, there is no shalom yet. We can't share that, that moment. There's no watching your favorite show together, going to your favorite restaurant, cuddling up on the couch, hugs and kisses, whatever it may be, until there's reconciliation. Now, once there's reconciliation, one or both parties apologizes, seeks forgiveness, and that forgiveness is gained. Now there is the, not only the cessation of hostility, but all of the blessings of closeness come back into the relationship again. All of this relational joy and intimacy and closeness is restored. That's shalom. Not just the absence of conflict with God. Because it is true that we were once enemies of God and now we're his friends because of Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled. Our sin has been taken away. But also there is the presence of peace with God. An ongoing relationship with him. And Paul says... This peace comes through Jesus Christ, and it's through Jesus Christ that we have received our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He says, now we are made right with God. We have all the blessings of a relationship with God. And one of those is this. It's not only that you were, you were saved by grace through faith when you believe. Salvation by grace through faith is not only a past event. It's actually an ongoing reality. That not only were you saved by grace, he says, now you stand in grace. And the idea is, now I stand in an ongoing state of grace before God, where I have the confidence that nothing that I have done, nothing that I do today, nothing that I will do tomorrow can separate me from this grace of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Paul will talk more about this in chapter 8. But he wants us to understand being reconciled to God now means I no longer have to run on this treadmill of good works in order to try to earn God's approval. Now, I will respond to God and the grace of God by obedience and worship and glorifying Him. But I'm not running on this treadmill of good works to try to earn the approval that he's already given me in Jesus Christ because he says, now you stand in grace. That is your position. The gift of God on your life is a new relationship with him that can never be taken away, a rewards package that never, ever ends. We talked last week about how during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, this concept of being saved by grace through faith was revolutionary. And, and of course, one of the key reformers was this German monk by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, when he was a monk, he said that he was one of the most scrupulous monks you can imagine because he was always living in fear of the judgment and wrath of God on his life. And so Martin Luther had days where he would spend six hours confessing his sins just out of fear that he'd forgotten one. And if he forgot one, the wrath of God would fall on his life 
And so he lived in terror and exhaustion and fear, trying to earn God's approval because that was the prevailing religious mindset of his day. And then he said when he read the books of Romans and Galatians again, and he saw that this idea of we are justified, made right before God by grace through faith, all of a sudden he realized God has already given me righteousness through Jesus Christ. So I stand in grace. I don't have to spend all of my life in fear because I'm never going to exhaust the supply of the grace of God. So Paul says this this first benefit is we have shalom, peace with God, this cessation, yes, of hostility, but the introduction of a new relationship and we stand in grace. He says now that we've been justified, we have peace with God. Beyond that, he's going to go on. He's going to say, not only do we have this restored relationship with God, but even in the midst of our sufferings and trials today, we have hope. Follow with me uh, verses 2, at the end of verse 2, through verse 8. He says, and we exult. There it is. We exult. We rejoice. We boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps... For the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he says, all right, we've been given peace with God and therefore we rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. And he says rejoicing in this hope is actually going to transform even the way that you think about your suffering. So so let me help us follow the logic. Somebody might say, look, if I have now peace with God, And everything is right between me and God. And I have this eternal hope and I have all of this shalom and all of these blessings that are promised to the people of God. Why is my life still hard? Why do I still suffer? Why is the bank account still low? Why is the job still terrible? Why is my marriage still struggling? Why are my kids not obeying? Why is it? that there's conflict between me and other people? Why is there uncertainty? in my, why, why am I still struggling? And Paul says, what I want you to understand is that you have a peace with God, a shalom that results in a hope that allows you to rejoice even in the face of external circumstances. Not because you love the trials. Nobody loves pain unless there's something wrong with them. So if you punch me in the eye, I'm not going to be like, yes, more. That's crazy. Right? It's not the the trials that we, we're not rejoicing because of the trials. We're rejoicing in the midst of them. Why? Because Paul says tribulation and suffering is not a good thing, but he says, I want you to understand what it can work in your life. What it can work in your life is a good thing. And then he gives us this chain of events. He says, tribulations bring about perseverance. That is that when I suffer, when I struggle, it's as if I'm exercising a muscle that allows me to endure better 
the next time I suffer and struggle. It allows me to persevere. And that perseverance, he says, brings about proven character. That is, the more that I endure trials in a way that honors God, the more my life begins to reflect the character of Jesus. I become a more patient person. I become a more loving and compassionate person. I become a person who begins to understand more and more how God wants me to respond to the real-life circumstances of this world that are often hard. It changes me. It transforms me so that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control begin to mark my life more and more and more. And that proven character, look at this, he comes back around, he says that proven character deepens our hope. It brings on more hope. That I begin to understand the hope of my life is not rooted in my temporary circumstances. It is rooted in an ongoing, permanent relationship with God where the presence of God is with me today and the peace of God has been given to me through Jesus Christ and the power and the glory of God, I will fully experience it one day when I see him face to face. And so I begin to dig deeper and deeper into this hope of the gospel rather than placing the weight of my life and my hope on the circumstances of this world, circumstances that will always let me down and fail me. The idea is that hope is sort of like a muscle that you have to exercise in order for it to grow stronger. Those of us who have ever been in a gym, you know that often trainers and people like that, they will tell you to do things that hurt. And, and as you're doing them, you think, I don't, I don't like this. Maybe there's a few people who like this, but most people are like, I don't like this pain. But you know that the, the, the more you stretch those muscles, the more you push those muscles, the stronger they become. Paul says hope is like a muscle. Douglas Moo, uh, one New Testament scholar, he says hope like a muscle will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we must exercise our hope. And the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of apparently hopeless circumstances will bring an ever deeper conviction of the reality and certainty of that for which we hope. Right? So, so hope is like a muscle. I've told, told you before, when I was in high school, I used to play saxophone in the marching band. And some of you may not realize that it requires a certain set of muscles around your mouth in order to hold what is called the embouchure, the mouth position that it takes in order to force air through that instrument and make a good sound. So, so if, you don't, if you don't continually practice on that instrument, you know what happens? The muscles begin to atrophy and you cannot play like you used to play. So that is why uh, about eight or ten years ago, that was the last time I picked up my instrument, I think one of my kids said, hey, can you play the saxophone like you did in high school so I can hear it? So I got it out of its case, I put it up to my lips, and I still remembered the finger movements, I still remembered how to make the embouchure, but after about 30 seconds of blowing into the instrument, you know what happened? Literally, my mouth just went, I couldn't do it. I couldn't hold with the strength I needed to hold because all those muscles had weakened from underuse. Paul says, hope is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. So when we face relational crisis with a friend, in our marriage, with our kids, and we choose to remind ourselves of the hope of the gospel, 
we remember that our hope is in our relationship with him and not in relationships with finite people who will always fail us. When we face the loss of a loved one and we grieve, Paul says we don't grieve anymore as those who have no hope because we remember a Savior who conquered death. And because he conquered death, we have the hope of resurrection. The more we hope in the midst of suffering, the more it deepens our hope. And he says this is a hope, by the way, that doesn't disappoint And he gives us two lines of evidence for why we can believe that the hope of Jesus Christ will not disappoint us. It won't let us down, unlike every other human hope. He says this hope doesn't disappoint, first of all, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful phrase. Here's what he's saying, is that if you know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, dwells within you. Again, he'll get more into this in chapter 8. And on a moment-by-moment basis, the Spirit of God is just pouring the love of God into your lived experience. Paul says it's not only that you have an intellectual understanding of the good news. It's also that if you know Jesus on a day-by-day basis, we ought to be experiencing the love of God in our hearts even when our circumstances seem to contradict what we know to be true. And I realize feelings come and go, and and feelings are not super reliable, but, but this feeling, this subjective feeling that God loves us, Paul says that is placed in there through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So there is subjective validation that God is with us. And then he goes on, he says, there's also the objective reality. That while we were still helpless, just at the right time, when we needed him the most, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, he says, though perhaps, maybe, for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says this is objective validation. You look at your present experience as you pray, as you read the word, as the spirit communicates to your heart and you say, I know God loves me, but you also look at the past reality of Christ's death and resurrection for a sinner like me. And I say, I feel that God loves me and I know that God loves me. Therefore, I can believe and trust that the hope of Jesus Christ will not disappoint. It will not let me down. Every other hope will. And the more I endure suffering and I lean into that kind of hope, the stronger my hope will grow. So you see what Paul says. There's this beautiful benefit of hope and suffering because we know what's true and we walk with God. Come back to the marriage illustration for just a minute. If someone said, how do you know that your spouse loves you? Well, you, you might talk about objective reality. Uh, I know that they love me because they stood up in front of a bunch of people and, and committed uh, to be with me for the rest of our lives. That, that's objective. We have a marriage certificate, right, that says we are objectively married. Uh, they buy me gifts sometimes for my birthday, anniversary, whatever. They tell me, they say, I love you. But then there's also the way they make you feel, right? The feeling of their presence in your life, near you and around you, 
where you say, I know it with my mind, but I feel it in my heart. Both together in our relationship with God, Paul says that's how we can know. This hope, it doesn't let you down. It doesn't disappoint you. And so we have a hope that endures. One of my favorite stories from the first couple centuries of church history is the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey, in the early 2nd century, so 100 to 150 A.D. Polycarp was probably martyred around 150 A.D., And he was martyred because at that time, uh, saying that Jesus Christ was the only way to God and that all of your worship would be directed to Jesus and all of your hope would be placed in Jesus, that was a no-no because you were also supposed to worship and make sacrifices to the emperor who was believed to be a god. And so Polycarp was arrested and told to recant his faith in Jesus and turn toward worshiping the emperor. If he did not, they said, he would be burned at the stake. And under this pressure of martyrdom, threatened with death, threatened with death if he didn't recant, here's what Polycarp said. He said, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? See what he does. He says, here's the experience of my life. I've known him for 86 years. He never did me wrong. I know it. I feel it. His presence is with me. But he says, he's also the one who saved me. He goes back to history. And he says, this is the Savior who died for me and arose again. Paraphrasing the rest of the story, Polycarp says, bring it on. And he was martyred for his faith. Now, you and I are unlikely to be martyred for our faith. But we will face trials that require us to say, God's been with me thus far, and I trust that he saved me by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I will root my hope, plant my feet on the unshakable hope that I have in Jesus Christ. So I have peace with God that leads to hope in my suffering. And of course, that leads to this confidence for the future that cannot be taken away. Look at verses 9 to 10. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So now Paul goes forward. Right, And he says, I want you to understand that, that now we will have, he moves future tense. He says, we have salvation, we have justification, we have peace from God, but here's what we will have. We will have deliverance from the wrath of God because we have this peace. We will have salvation to eternal life because we have this peace. We have hope for a future that nothing in this world can shake. This is where our joy comes from. This is where our joy comes from. That no matter what's going on around us, I know that there is a future in Jesus Christ that can never be taken away. That the flow of the blessings of God will never be shut off. Not today, not tomorrow, not a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, not after ten thousands of ten thousands of years in the presence of God, surrounded by his glory and living in his kingdom. We have confidence 
for the future. If you are of a certain age, you'll remember a song from the 1980s by the band Timbuk3, which I guess was a one-hit wonder. Here are the lyrics. Some of you will remember this. I study nuclear science. I love my classes. I got a crazy teacher. He wears dark glasses. Things are going great, and they're only getting better. I'm doing all right, getting good grades. The future's so bright, I got to wear shades. You know it. I've got a job waiting for my graduation, 50000 a year, buys a lot of beer. Things are going great, and they're only getting better. I'm doing all right, getting good grades. The future's so bright, I got to wear shades. Now, uh, you know, on the surface, this is a song about a guy graduating college who's looking forward to a great job, and he's going to make a lot of money. But I read it recently, and I realized this is a song about the threat of nuclear holocaust. That here is a person who he has all the money. He's got all the trappings of a good life. And he says, the future's so bright, i got to wear shades. Not because it's good, but because he anticipates the explosion of a nuclear bomb that will wipe out his future, despite everything being great in the present. But Paul flips this on his head. And he says, actually, if you know Jesus, the situation is opposite to that. Everything may look dark right now. Threat of war, the lack of peace in our world, trials in our day-to-day existence. But he says, if you know Jesus, in fact, the future really is bright. Not because of a nuclear holocaust, but because of the glory and the grace of God. This is why Revelation 21, which we looked at last fall, toward the end of the Bible, tells us this. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now look further down in the passage. And the city, that is the new Jerusalem. Look at this. It has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the lamb. Isn't that beautiful? The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The future is bright. And Paul says we have this confident hope, even in the midst of trial, that we are reconciled to God. We are recipients of all of his lavish blessings of grace now and forever. And we have hope for the future that can never be shaken. That is the rewards program of knowing Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, consequently, we have joy in our Jesus. We have joy in our Jesus, verse 11. And not only this, but also we exult. There it is again. We boast, we rejoice, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. He says the conclusion is this. Through Jesus Christ, God declared us righteous, gave us permanent peace with him. We stand in grace. We have confidence and hope in the midst of our trials. We have an unshakable hope 
for the future. And he says, therefore, no matter what's going on in your life, you can rejoice. And in fact, you can boast. You can tell others about the lavish grace of God. That as you walk into the workplace or your neighborhood or your family or wherever it is you go, and the joy of Jesus Christ shines through your life even in the midst of trial, you can proclaim and boast, I have this joy, not because of anything I am or have done, but because I am now declared right with God. I've been given a status of righteousness before God that results in lavish benefits that accrue to my life, that are true of my life, no matter what the external circumstances are in the moment. And so Paul says, you've got joy in Jesus. Here's the only question I really want to ask then this morning. Is your life characterized by joy? Is your life characterized by the joy of the Lord? Is mine? Or are we tossed on the waves of our circumstances and our trials? Do we lose hope when things are going poorly and grasp at hope in things that won't last? Or is there a settled sense of joy that comes not from our circumstances, but from the promises and the peace and the blessings of God? If you're like me and you struggle to rejoice, here's what I want to ask you to do this week. Here's a list of all of the blessings of God that are mentioned in this passage for those who know Jesus Christ. I want you to take a picture of it. I see a couple of you already photographing it. Good. Take a picture of it and look at these and and ponder them. Justification, that is, I've now been declared right with God. I've been given peace with God. This shalom, this all-encompassing sense of wholeness and peace. Grace for every moment. I stand in grace rather than running on the treadmill of works. I have hope in the face of suffering. I have the love of God poured into my heart through the Holy Spirit. I have the good news of Jesus Christ that he died even while I was in sin and rose again so I could have eternal life and I have confidence for the future. So as you have a photo of this now, here's what I challenge you to do is you wake up in the morning, open up Romans 5 and look at this list and you say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the never-ending reward of knowing you. God, I rejoice no matter what's going on because of all of these benefits and blessings in my life. We fill our minds and heart with the truth of God's word, which increases our hope and deepens our joy. And then what I want to challenge you to do this week also, you've got that on your, on your phone, and if somebody's like, hey, what are you looking at? What are you reading? Boast and exult in the hope of the glory of God. You say, look at all the benefits that accrue to my life because of what Jesus has done. Stand on it and proclaim it because it's true. Let me pray. We will close in worship and we will rejoice and exult in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. So much for your word. So much for your love. So much for Jesus Christ, our Savior, that by his death and resurrection, We have eternal life. We have the grace of God lavished on our life. And we have hope for the future that can't be shaken. 
And that leads to joy that cannot be taken away. And so, Father, we pray we would live in that joy. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Let our lives testify to the beauty of your grace and the truth of your hope. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.